Hello, you're listening to the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran, and along with Padraig Otuma, we started 10 by 9 in the Black Box in Belfast in September 2011, and we're still there every month. If you've never been to a 10 by 9 well, it's a live event where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life, and we love it. There are three and a bit stories on this podcast. They were all told at a special evening in the Black Box when we collaborated with the Integrated Education Fund and the theme was peace. To kick the evening off, local politician and leader of the Green Party, Claire Bailey, told about her experience as a pupil in the early days of integrated education. This is the bit part of the three and a bit. So in 1981, I was, well, I was still 10-year-old in P7 and I went to Catholic primary school. Lagan College was mooted to be opened. It came a wee bit late in the year, so it was around May time that my mum got wind that Lagan College was to be open. A friend of hers was engaged with the integrated or All Children Together movement and had said, so my sister and I are Irish twins. She's born in July, I'm born in June. So we were both going to school at the same time. And my mum considered sending us there. So when the results were coming in from our 11+, plus, um, and my mum was telling my headmaster at my primary school that I'm going to go to this lagging college with the girls. And he was going, what? So around that time, Catholic, anybody went to Catholic school will know that you do your confirmation. Um, so I had to go and do my confirmation, my sister and I. And the diocese got wind that there was two of their congregation were going to this integrated school. Didn't know what that was. So... There was a special service put on where all the Catholic schools were brought together. We were put down in St. Gongles Church, which was the biggest one in Antrim Town at that time, and they helicoptered in the bishop to come and do that service. <laughs> so the bishop stood on his pulpit. Of course, I'm in my lovely new dress and looking to see what everybody else is wearing, thought it was gorgeous, and checking everybody out. They weren't as gorgeous as I was. At the same time, the bishop was telling everybody in the congregation that there was this school opening and it was going to make Catholics and Protestants go to school together. And he wanted to remind everybody there that Catholic schools and Protestant schools and Catholic children and Protestant children should never be mixed in our education system. So it was a public shaming, really, of my parents and my wider family. Of course, my sister and I didn't listen um, but that was happening at that time. At the same time, 1981, the hunger strikes were going on, set the context of the socio-political, economic um, context of what was happening and what these parents were trying to achieve. So Bobby Sands was on hunger strike. Bobby Sands was getting elected as an MP. All this um, turmoil was going on. I come from a West Belfast family, so I was climbing over burning buses to go and see my granny. Riots were happening on the streets. Um, and September came, and we went... Lagan College. There was no school, by the way. It was in a scout hut. There was a small movement of people trying to get this going and 26 families because there was two with Irish twins. So there's 28 pupils <laughs> trying to get their kids into something else. So my first day, I'm on the, the Keen anthology of the, the history of the troubles here. My first day at big school, I was 11. The world's media were standing outside the front of this uh, scout hall in Ardena Valley, looking to see what was going on. Um, it was in the borough of Castlereagh Council. Castlereagh Council were not really happy that it was happening on our land. So they came to protest en masse as well. I'll just leave you with who was on council at the time and maybe how far they rose as well, coming to throw eggs at us at the age of 11. So my 
principal at the time decided that we weren't going to walk in through that front door. So she brought us up round the back, up the river lag and at Shaw's Bridge and into the back door of Ardna Valley Scout Hall. And so began our adventures at Lagan College. Thanks, Claire. Hoping to have you back at the mic soon for a full story. We had five first-timers on the night, which was great, and three of them are on this podcast. Here's the first, Michael McKnight. When I was 16, my dad got me a job in a brass factory in Lisburn. The firm manufactured picture hooks, pipe fittings, and bicycle repair kits, and I was a general labourer. The work was dirty and arduous, and I was sentenced to 40 hours per week. It was my Shawshank experience, but for the fact that I got parole every night at five o'clock and earned the princely sum of 40 pounds a week. It was 1979, and this was big dough. Cash was king, and I could trade it for the two things that mattered most to my teenage self, records and clothes. This was the currency that could buy me street cred with my peers and make me interesting to girls, or so I hoped. I can still remember the journeys into Belfast on the bus with my mates, my wages burning a hole in my jeans pocket. The number six would dock at the city hall and we'd spill out of the doors like men fleeing a burning building before legging it to good vibrations and doogie nights to leaf through the racks of vinyl in search of new sounds. We were young soul rebels and rock music was our religion. As important as music was, looking cool was also as vital as oxygen. And one Saturday in late August, I made the fashion purchase that almost changed my life, and not in the manner I'd hoped. I bought a combat jacket. As an urban teenager, I read the enemy and signs, and alongside my burgeoning musical awakening, I was beginning to develop a left-leaning political consciousness. The iconic image of Che Guevara stared at us from posters and t-shirts, and revolution was cool. There was even a sitcom on the TV called Citizen Smith, which featured a character called Wolfie Smith, who was a self-styled leader of the Tooting Popular Front. Wolfie's catchphrase was power to the people, and he stuck it to the man whenever he could. And crucially, he wore a combat jacket. I had to have one and pictured myself sauntering into school in September, blazer banished beneath my olive green field jacket, every inch the sixth form revolutionary. And so, on the weekend before school started back, I found myself at Abraham's Army Surplus Store in Clifton Street near Carlisle Circus. It was a dingy place that I'd only previously seen framed in a bus window, and it sold all manner of military regalia. Camouflage trousers, jackets, webbing belts, packs, balaclavas. In hindsight, it was most likely the one-stop shop for every paramilitary hood <laughs> in North Belfast. But somehow I failed to make this most obvious of connections. <laughs> Adrift in a cloud of fanciful daydreams, I only had eyes for the merchandise and settled on a vintage US Army jacket. I tried it on and felt like Che. Sold. When I got home, my mother was appalled as I modelled my new purchase in front of the mirror in the good room. Don't let your daddy see you in that, she complained. You look like a corner boy. I was 16 and my mother's rebuke and my father's predicted outrage were all the encouragement I needed. <laughs> I wasn't an idiot, however, and unwilling to have the hallowed garments sequestered by my parents, I decided to hide it in a bin bag in a hedge in our driveway and suit up on the way to the bus stop. Monday morning came and my plan unfolded like a dream. By the time the bus dropped me off at the bottom of the Cliftonville Road to walk the 200 yards to school, I had basked in the glory of my new jacket all journey long. 
Guys in the year above who'd never spoken nodded with approval, and mates eyed my jacket enviously. Girls sensed the dangerous allure I exuded and noticed me. <laughs> I felt badass. I even sashayed languidly through the main gates of school and across the playground before disrobing and stashing the jacket in my locker in case any of the teachers saw me and confiscated it. A week passed and my iconic status as an urban gorilla grew. But on the following Friday afternoon, the reality of living in Belfast in the 70s intervened. And for a while, the fun of being a teenager died. It was a normal Friday and school had just finished. Several mates and I had decided to walk into school along the lower Antrim Road. It was an opportunity to hang out in the record stores or maybe blag our way into the Avenue Picture House to see an X-rated horror movie. And so we dandered down the road, me resplendent in the uniform of Teenage Rebellion, my combat jacket, my mates either side. Suddenly, there was a screech of brakes and an army vehicle, a Saracen shuddered to a halt in front of us. The back doors flew open and four squaddies barreled out, rifles in hand. Stop right there, lads, one yelled before singling me out. You, he barked, up against the wall. I was stunned in the silence and hesitated, confused. Did he really mean me? I hadn't done anything. Now, you little putty bastard. And he grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and flung me face front up against the adjacent gable wall. He kicked my feet apart and trembling, I assumed the position. As the other soldiers sniggered and my mates looked at the ground, trying to disappear, I was patted down. Think you're a bloody freedom fighter, do you? Dressing up like a provo, the soldier spat. I could hardly breathe and my heart was hammering in my chest. Tension hung heavy in the air and time slowed so that seconds stretched unbearably. Leave him, Sad. he's just a little twat, just a school kid who fancies himself, a less angry English voice called out. The soldier leaned in and whispered menacingly in my ear, I'll be watching out for you, now piss off. And then as suddenly as it began, it was over. My tremendous stepped away without a further word. The soldiers leapt back into their vehicle and were gone. I sank to my knees. My mates rushed to my side. We were in shock. What had just happened and why? Brian, normally a friend, a few words broke the tension. Fascists, he declared, and we all laughed nervously. We went on into town that day, but not before I'd removed my jacket and stuffed it into my school bag. The military intervention had shaken me up, and for the first time as a young adult, I stared into the abyss of the insanity that gripped my city. I was aware of the rioting, the shootings and explosions, but the troubles hadn't directly impacted my life, and so like many of my generation, I simply blanked it out and got on with living. Now I realise that the conflict could reach out and claim anyone simply because of the jacket you wore. I walked more carefully around the city after that, and two years later, departed in the Liverpool boat for university in England. Revisiting the past from the perspective of middle age, I realised that the records, the fashion, the movies and books I'd have art, and even my flirtation with teenage rebellion in a combat jacket, offered escape from the madness that enmeshed us and that we regarded as somehow normal. Soldiers brandishing guns in the streets, the bomb blasts, the horrific cavalcade of tit-for-tat sectarian murders. It was a dreadful reality and something none of us should have had to live through, and yet somehow we did. In the midst of the maelstrom, it was music and clothes that enabled us to define ourselves as something that wasn't orange or green, and opened up vistas that allowed us to look beyond the depressing truth of life in Belfast and dream of something better. For those of us who made it through those dark times and refused to let it twist us out of shape, embitter us or force us to take sides, I hope that we became peace builders and the quiet architects of soft revolution where combat jackets were not required. 
As for the combat jacket, well, it got a run out at a CND rally in 1980, and then New Wave came along, and in the spin of a 45, the single, not the pistol, it wasn't hip anymore. Thanks, Michael. Next up, here's Gary Hunter. The boy runs through the rain into the gloom of an October evening. He slows down, twists and waves once over his left shoulder. He shouts out, but I can't hear him. I shake my head. He turns away, stumbles over flapping wet laces, steadies himself, picks up speed and runs on, getting smaller, insubstantial, vanishing like smoke, gone. Maybe it was the rain that dredged the memory up, blinking into the half-light of a wet autumn afternoon, years later and a lifetime away. I stood staring out of the window at a drowned green world, a steady deluge, pummeled remnants of garden flowers, flat and pathetic. The heavy rain beat an unrelenting tattoo on the window, and an empty bird feeder hung from a dripping branch. I remembered my friend, John. In the autumn of 1966, John Rankin and I were inseparable. We were primary school classmates and lived in the same block of flats in North Belfast. We loved the Beatles and the man from UNCLE. John was a clumsy, awkward kid, gangly, angular. His narrow hunched shoulders and thick black horn-rimmed glasses made him look like he was always apologizing for something. He willingly embraced his role as the class fool talking to his pencil, drinking ink, just being an idiot, and trying to look up girls' dresses. Desperate to make people laugh, he was often in trouble. Has ability, will not try, school reports advised. He was punished, sent to the principal's office, made to stand in the corner outside the classroom, caned and battered, but John kept smiling that same stupid smile. During the warm, endless days of summer, we'd get nets and go fishing for spricks in the little river that ran through Alexander Gardens. Sometimes we stayed until the wee man with the big built-up shoe came limping up the path to shout at us and lock the gates. I overheard my parents in the kitchen, whispering there was something not quite right about wee John's family. God help them, his mommy was lovely, you know, when she was young. Lovely girl, great dancer she was, won competitions and all. Awful shame. John's mother was a thin, nervous woman who chain-smoked and muttered to herself. She'd disappear for weeks at a time. It was rumoured she was in and out of the mental home and couldn't look at herself in mirrors without crying. His dad went to work in a blue boiler suit and smelled of oil and cigarettes. You'd hear him coming home at night, the landing echoing with slurred songs, keys jangling, slow and steady thud of heavy boots. Thud, thud, thud. One day John and me were playing commandos versus japs on the first floor of our block. I kicked over three empty milk bottles that Mrs. de Courcy had placed on the mat outside her door. I watched the slow motion explosion, shards of light, sparkling silver raining over the balcony onto the concrete below. Doors opened, footsteps and raised voices getting closer. Mrs. de Courcy flew out snarling, skin and bone in a pink housecoat, face powder and ropey blue veins. I panicked, the old doll would tell. She'd hobble up the stairs quick as she could, knock on my door, wag a dirty claw in my da's face, and she'd love it. Da said she was a nosy old bitch from the pits of hell, but I knew I was in trouble. I decided to run away. John said he'd run away too. He disappeared into his flat, returning minutes later with some crisps and penguin biscuits and a carton of orange in a paper bag. No time to lose. Run, don't stop to think. Go now, hurry. 
I pictured my father, face clouded, dark and rage, tight-lipped, looming over me. They'd look for us in the park, maybe the swings at the waterworks. We wandered along the length of the limestone road, scaring ourselves the stories of witches, old ladies dressed in black, living alone, houses dark and blinds drawn, dreaming of the tender, smoking flesh of roasted children. We'd been warned about bad men in raincoats who'd bundle you into their cars, take you away somewhere and interfere with you. My parents wouldn't elaborate any further about what this entailed, so we could only speculate, but John said it meant feeling you up. <laughs> As darkness settled over the city and the streetlights came on, we gave up and skulked back towards home. As we turned the corner onto the Antrim Road, we met my father, who'd been walking around looking for us. He was cross, but he was glad we were all right. I cried expecting a beating, but he must have thought I'd been punished enough. He took us to Rossi's for ice cream. When we got back to the flats, I saw that the broken glass had been swept away. On a dark, dreary October day, as the year began its slow drift into winter, John and I were playing round the back of the flats. We hurled stones at big dusty grey rats that squeaked and rummaged at the bottom of the rubbish chutes. Rain fell hard, and lights in the rear windows of the houses opposite were coming on. Near a dented bin, an old dog nosed through sodden papers. Rainwater spluttered from a broken drain pipe. The dog had a sore on his back and he walked with his head down. We were wet and restless, tired of our games. Basil, the Indian medical student, cycled past, draped in a bright yellow waterproof cape. He grinned at us and rang his bell. There was something we wanted to see on TV, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Fireball XL5 or Ivanhoe. John moved first. I watched him run off, jumping across oily rainbow-hued puddles. As I stood alone in the gathering gloom, the world seemed to fall silent, and I felt an emptiness, a sense of loss, strong as a hard punch to my gut. Somehow, somehow I knew that this was the way of it. Everything changed, nothing lasted or stayed the same. Rain would fall and wash everything away. John and I remained friends until the 11-plus in secondary school split us up. I moved to a new three-bedroom three house across town. We saw each other infrequently, and then not at all. Years later, I was working, working for a local newspaper. I was sitting in the editorial library studying a file on North Belfast shootings for an article on Peace Walls. I pulled out a brittle, bone-yellow news clipping from 1975. The piece described a shooting in a bar. The victim was John Rankin, 19, from Tigers Bay. I held the paper close, studied the accompanying picture. It was a stark police mugshot. Even with his hair grown long and without the glasses, I recognised the sad, stupid smile and the open face of my friend John. He'd been shot in retaliation for a double murder he'd committed a week earlier. He'd killed a father and son. The hit was unsanctioned, so John had to go. He'd been shot twice in the face at close range. Police sources claimed the killings were part of an internecine paramilitary feud. John was... A later report covered the funeral. There was a photograph of a flag-draped coffin borne by men in berets and dark glasses. Shots were fired into the air at the graveside. He was described by friends and neighbours as a hero and a lovely guy who lived for his family. He left a teenage widow and twin girls. There were, the paper stated, plans to dedicate a new mural to his memory. He'd live on, a legend in paint and song, a tale told in dingy clubs, over pints and overflowing ashtrays. Long, long ago, and worlds away. But sometimes when it rains and the days die early, I listen to the silence, haunted by that same feeling of transience, of loss and loneliness. I think about John and all the lost children running blind into the distance, 
thin wreaths of smoke swallowed up by an immense darkness, unable to find their way back home. What a powerful, tragic story. Thanks, Gary. Now, if you want to keep up with all the 10 by 9 goings on, then go to our website, 10 by 9com or follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we even have a 10 by 9 YouTube channel where we've added some pics to some of our stories. Now, on to the last of our first-timers in this podcast, and here's Mari McCurdy. I slip a 10-point note into the envelope. This debt has been owed for more than 30 years, so I hope a tenor will cover it and shut up the tiny tutting voice in my head. I don't know the exact address to send it to, but I can imagine it'll still get there okay. I became liable for the debt on a warm evening at the end of June 1987. Exams were over, yet my nice all-girls grammar school expected us to attend, pretending their lessons still had importance in the final throes of the summer term. The long holiday was almost within reach and the thrum of my impatience was echoed in the pulse of pigeons outside my window. And it was a bloody Wednesday too. God, could there be a worse day to be a twitchy teen? My disquiet sent me downstairs. Mooching from the curtained twilight of my bedroom to the lounge, I found my father watching the ITV news. A band had arrived at Aldergrove Airport. They looked like a posse of Texans in Stetsons and cowboy boots. They can bloody well go home. We don't want them, he said. I checked the kitchen. Bach or Brahms blasting. Mum up to her oxters in the oven armed with the Brillo pads. Surely there had to be a better offer, even on a Wednesday. Sauntering down the road to my friend's house, I thought my pocket money might stretch to a gravy chip at the Chinese. But she was about to head out to a concert with some other people. I didn't know them. Didn't much like them, but I sure wished I could join them, maybe even just for a while. We lived in Belfast, finicky to be exact, but not too specific. And about 10 minutes walk from the venue, the King's Hall, I thought I might as well tag along and soak up the anticipation from the curbside. I wasn't so keen on the band. My dad hated them with a passion. He had turned the radio off when their songs came on and shouted at the TV when they appeared on some chat show or other. Who do they think they are preaching to us? Bunch of bloody Republicans, he'd say, on a good day. His disdain was mostly white noise to a teenage me, but it lay like silt at the bottom of my choices. Lack of exposure taught me certain stuff wasn't my territory. This music, this band, they just weren't on my radar. But coming across the snaking line of ecstatic fans packed behind barriers along the roadside, I felt maybe I was missing something. Some of these people had been waiting all night. They were still fizzing, cheering at the passing cars and pedestrians, waving their placards and painted bedsheets, guldering band anthems at the top of their lungs. This dedication was both intriguing and ear-splitting. Their chanting didn't bring me any closer to loving the band, but there was something about how they were consumed by their own singing. I felt a pang or a longing to join in, but I didn't know the tunes or the words. A thick-set security guard threw his fag in the gutter and unsnapped a padlock. The chain slid to the ground. There were some inaudible instructions and the gates finally opened. The tight line of teenagers seemed to spring a leak, <coughs> bursting forth onto the forecourt in a stream of squeals, and I, I joined them. The crowd 
gushed forward like a tsunami, thundering up the steps, spewing through the main doors, coursing through the turnstiles. Here I could have dodged to the side, let the honest paid-up ticket holders forge ahead, and I could have walked home in the brightness of a summer evening. But I didn't. The bar of the turnstile, like a police baton, pressed into my stomach. Flustered, red-faced ticket staff were swamped as hundreds of teenagers poured through the doors and into the auditorium. The bottleneck released us, and I stumbled into a wide-open space, filling slowly by the steady flow of ardent fans and, yes, me. Bewildered and confused, I'd lost everyone I knew. All those who surrounded me now had been dying for this moment. Tickets pinned to walls, pressed in wallets, secreted in drawers until this glorious day, and here I was, the imposter. Bodies crushed against me as the space all around disappeared. The lighting suddenly dimmed and chattering voices surged in a unified cheer as an old bloke came on stage. Everyone else seemed to know him and his songs and do, 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 in all the right places. I was sure they would detect my nervous mumbling and call the nearest security guard to boot me back down to Finicky. There was a shift. The old guy thanked and bowed and left the stage. The crowd moved forward as one expectant trembling mass towards the front. Something was about to happen. The music had gone quiet. Whistles and cheers, shouts and screams charged the dark void above our heads. If anticipation had a sound, this was it. Then a song I did know blasted out the PA. Benny King, stand by me. The crowd went wild, as if this tune was a secret sign and they knew four men would now amble on stage, grab guitars, drumsticks, mic, to take up the baton and finish it. The roars of approval were quickly clipped by a hypnotic chord from the keyboards and the tick of percussion, bringing our attention back, holding our suspense in sound. Then an echoing guitar cut through, and cheers of recognition rose, drawing us upwards and upwards towards the explosion of bass and drum and song. The crowd was one, up, 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 bouncing in time to the thumping bass that vibrated through each and every heart, and the wave of euphoria swept me away. Suddenly I find myself on someone's shoulders, arms above my head, madly clapping to the beat of this new music. I was in unison with these people on stage, these people surrounding me, filled with the sound and words and electricity of the moment. Then came confusion. The snare drum started a new rhythm, a military one. The song was starting, a rebel song. Or not a rebel song? I didn't actually know, I'd never listened to the words. But the singer stopped. He was annoyed talking to a few in the balcony who'd brought out flags, Union Jack and Trickler, he ordered they be put away. We're sick of flags, he said. And the crowd's whistles and jeers concurred till the words were obeyed and the flags disappeared. In 1980s Belfast, with no peace agreement, with security alerts, bombs and shootings, still part of our everyday, where people from the opposing sides were rarely in the same room together, that night they listened and responded. That night was a kind of epiphany for me, standing on the sidelines, and not knowing the words, absorbing and accepting what I'd been told was my culture and what didn't belong to me, well, I just wasn't going to believe that anymore. I'm sure it was already there somewhere, but sharing in that night, where the driving bass, the ringing guitar, 
the pulsing beat, the potent voice united the crowd. Seeing what was possible in a hall with people who I'd believed hated each other's guts struck a note that has been resonating in my life like a tuning fork ever since. Once this money is sent, the wee nagging voice at the back of my head will be at peace. The debt owed for the ticket will be paid. But the debt is more than that. I think finding my home in the integrated sector in Northern Ireland came from that night. Educating kids from different backgrounds all together in Shimna's school community does what took place in that hall 30 years ago every single day, maybe not always with quite as much rock and roll. But still, I reopen the envelope and add a note. Thanks, Adam, Larry, Edge, Bono. That was worth at least a tenner. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mary. I, I, it's a terrible admission of my age, but I started reading your story, brilliant story that it is, but I hadn't found out who the band was, and all I could think was, I hope to God this isn't the Bay City Rollers. <laughs> <laughs> the Bay City Rollers. Oh, for goodness sake. Anyway, thanks so much, Mary. I'm sure the U2 fellas are gagging for that tenor. And that's it from the podcast for now. We'd like to say a very special thank you to the Integrated Education Fund for making the evening possible. Be sure to check out our website and social media feeds. And if you fancy a 10 by 9 at your festival or your conference or social event, see what we have to offer and get in touch. If you enjoy the podcast, spread the word. And if you can give us a rating or even a review at Apple Podcasts, we'd be very grateful. Also, if you'd like to help support what we do, we have a Patreon page and you can access that through our website. A big thank you to all the wonderful people in the black box and to our amazing audience. But of course, the biggest thank you goes to Claire, Michael, Mari and Gary. Our theme tune, by the way, comes from the Free Music Archive and is by Fantastic Swimmers, while our incidental music is by Brent Bourgeois, and we got that at Facebook Sounds. For now, bye-bye. <laughs>